Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lights Out Library. My name is Sarah, and I'm so glad you're here. Join me as we explore another chapter in the story of our endlessly fascinating world. Let me start by telling you a story, the first of many I will tell you tonight. Once upon a time, Zeus, the king of gods, had an affair with a mortal woman. This was not his first affair, nor would it be his last, and Zeus, as a result, had fathered various children with mortals, including Perseus, who was now the grandfather of a young beauty, Alcmene. Zeus, being unconcerned with incest, chose Alcmene as his next conquest, as her face and eyes were as charming and irresistible as Aphrodite's, the goddess of love and beauty. Furthermore, Alcmene's wisdom was unsurpassed, and it was said that she could please men like no other. Alcmene was married to Amphitryon, but one day, while her husband was off at war, Zeus persuaded her that he was Amphitryon, home early from an expedition, and slept with Alcmene, making her pregnant. But that same night, her real husband did return, and Alcmene saw that she had been tricked. She slept with her husband that night as well, and became pregnant again, now bearing twins from two different fathers. Zeus was also married to the goddess Hera, and when she found out what her divine husband had done yet again, she flew into a jealous rage and swore to get revenge. She could be as much a trickster as Zeus, and so she persuaded him, the king of gods, to swear an oath that the next male born in the house of Perseus would become high king. They both knew that Alcmene was about to give birth, and so Zeus, thinking the title would go to his son, was happy to oblige. But as soon as Zeus swore the oath, Hera went into action. Another son was soon to be born in the house of Perseus, Eurystheus. So Hera hurried to Alcmene's dwelling and slowed the birth of her twins by forcing the goddess of childbirth to sit cross-legged with her clothing tied in knots near the laboring mother, causing the twins to stay trapped in the womb. Then Hera forced Eurystheus to be born prematurely, making him high king in place of Zeus's son. Having assured that the son of her adulterous husband would have no title, Hera now allowed Alcmene to finally have her twins, the son of Amphitryon, Iphicles, and the son of Zeus, named Alcides. For fear of Hera's revenge, Alcmene left the infant to die. But the goddess Athena, who often protected heroes, 
as the sons of gods with mortals were called, rescued the infant and brought him to Hera. Not recognizing the child, Hera's motherly instincts kicked in, and out of pity for the abandoned child, she nursed him. The baby, though, had so much strength, so much vigor, that as he suckled her breast, he caused Hera pain. She pushed the baby away, and in doing so, her milk sprayed across the heavens, forming the Milky Way. Athena restored the infant to Alcamini, and he was raised by his mortal parents. Alcides was a strong and brave little boy, but his parents knew that Hera had not been appeased and would still come for him. She once sent two snakes to the twins' bedroom to bite Alcides, but the boy caught them without fear, broke their necks, and was later found by his parents, playing with their limp bodies. In an attempt to protect their son from the goddess's wrath, they renamed him Heracles, glory of Hera, in the hope that this would appease her anger. She was not to be appeased, however, and she continued to send various ordeals his way, all the while plotting her big revenge. Heracles reached adulthood and, still living in the city of Thebes, married Megara, the king's daughter, with whom he had three children. Hera could not bear to see the strapping Heracles, enjoying the happiness and love for his family. She inflicted him with a fit of madness, and in his uncontrollable rage, Heracles killed his wife and children. Devastated by his actions, Heracles fled to the temple of Apollo, where the oracle of Delphi, Pythia, the high priestess of the temple, resided. As oracle, Pythia was believed to have the power of prophecy and guided by a vengeful Hera, directed Heracles to serve Eurystheus, the high king. This was the same King Eurystheus who owed his title to Hera's actions when she had accelerated his birth all those years before. Pythia assured Heracles that his crime, the murder of his family, would be redeemed if he served Eurystheus for ten years and accomplished any assignment given him. Hercules accepted and went to Eurystheus, where he performed a series of extraordinary tasks that would cement his name in legend, the Twelve Labors. This is the story we're going to explore tonight, together with several other aspects of ancient Greek mythology and culture. How were different myths connected to one another? How were they elaborated upon over time? This will be a long journey into the past and Greek mythology alongside the story of the labors of Heracles. Along the way we will travel to dangerous marshes, the lairs of monsters like the Hydra, the land of the Amazons, the Garden of the Hesperides, and even to the underworld, 
the kingdom of death. But the important part is that you rest and let my voice be your guide. So close your eyes, find a comfortable position, and remember that what matters isn't all the complicated Greek names, but the stories. I think Heracles has much to teach us still about ingenuity, perseverance, and resilience. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming stories and to be alerted to new releases, see links in the story's description to Facebook, Instagram, and to Patreon, where you can now subscribe for access to exclusive content and to contribute monthly to Lights Out Library, starting at just $2 a month. Thank you to everyone who has already subscribed. Your support helps to make this work possible. And a quick note before we continue. Heracles is the Greek name of our hero tonight. When the Romans later adapted this story, they renamed him Hercules. But I will be referring to him by his given Greek name for this journey. So let's resume our story. King Eurystheus assigned Heracles his first labor, which was to slay the Nemean lion. In the town of Nemea, in the northeastern part of the Peloponnese, lived a monstrous lion, a creature that couldn't be killed with weapons because it was protected by its magical golden fur. The Nemeans lived in terror of this lion, as its claws were sharper than the sharpest sword and could cut through any armor. Heracles, not knowing about its impenetrable fur, hoped he could kill it at a distance with arrows. But after shooting several arrows at the creature, all of which simply bounced off, Heracles realized that his plan would not work. He needed another plan. That night, as the lion slept in a cave with two entrances, Heracles blocked one so that the creature wouldn't be able to escape. He stunned the beast with a club, then strangled it with his bare hands. The lion's golden fur was useless against the attack, but after slaying the lion, Heracles still could not pierce the pelt to skin the animal. The goddess Athena watched his efforts and inspired Heracles to use the sharpest weapon available, one of the lion's own claws. It worked, and Heracles turned the fur into a coat that he wore from then on, as it was impervious to the elements and to most weapons. The golden coat protected Heracles for the rest of his adventures, and he was often depicted in antiquity, wearing this coat and carrying a club. In this first labor, Heracles shows the kind of courage, physical strength, and intelligence that are typical of Greek heroes. But what is a hero really? The word gets used a lot, some might even say overused, and its meaning has continued to evolve over a long period of time. 
Nowadays, the word hero could refer to a person who is admired for extraordinary acts of bravery, for standing up against injustice, or for showing exceptional kindness to someone in need. A hero can be a real person, dead or alive, or even a fictional character, like the many superheroes whose franchises, prequels, and sequels seem to come out in theaters weekly. In Greek antiquity, though, the definition of a hero was more restrictive. Heroes were warriors with exemplary lives, living and often dying in the pursuit of honor. They were extraordinarily gifted, and usually part god or goddess. In other words, heroes were mythical rather than real characters, belonging to mythology and literature. Even the bravest Greek warrior would never have been called a hero in real life. The closest we have in modern life to the Greek understanding of a hero is our superheroes, or other fictional protagonists in general. Another typical characteristic of ancient Greek heroes was that they were always portrayed as flawed. They could behave with arrogance, almost like children. They could be too naive, sometimes foolhardy. They could embark on missions or ruin people's lives for trivial reasons. But generally, and contrary to the gods to whom they answered, Greek heroes evolved. Whereas Greek gods, as in many other pantheons, represented or dominated something fixed, the god of war or thunder, the seas, the skies, love, death. A hero went on a journey to discover the world and his place in it. Greek gods were depicted with human-like characteristics. They have feelings and passions. They fight. They have personalities but they never change. Heroes, on the other hand, are closer to humans and have a narrative associated with their existence. They explore, they learn, they face dilemmas and build legacies to outlive them. The archetypal hero, apart from Heracles, is Achilles, who fought in the Trojan War on the side of the attackers. The Greeks. He is the central character of the Iliad, the tale by Greek poet Homer of the fight between the Trojans and the armies led by King Agamemnon. Achilles had superhuman strength on the battlefield and was protected by some of the gods, especially Athena. But he was also temperamental able to lose his humanity and become uselessly cruel. For example, Achilles withdrew from the Trojan War and only returned to avenge his best friend and lover, who had been killed by Hector, another hero and prince who fought on the Trojan side. Achilles vanquished Hector and then dragged his body around the walls of Troy to humiliate an enemy who was already dead. 
Achilles was known for his uncontrollable rage, which made him act impulsively and was depicted as deeply flawed. The culture's main heroes were worshipped as half-gods, with their own temples and legacies that were preserved through Greek literature. This literary tradition developed multifaceted characters and told stories, at least in the written form, like probably no other culture had before it. And because heroes change and can die, they are relatable. They can be role models, and they can tell cautionary tales. This makes them a bridge between mythology, religion, and literature. Their stories were not only entertaining, they were edifying, too. After the Greco-Roman period, when these characters receded in popular culture and disappeared in religion, their cults also disappeared. The saints replaced them culturally, be it in the Christian or Muslim traditions. Saints are celebrated not because they were born perfect, but because they undertook heroic journeys of a spiritual nature, but above all were said to have accomplished miracles. They are not heroes in the classical sense of the term, but maybe they played a similar role in popular culture and served as a replacement for these out-of-fashion heroic figures. In ancient Greece, and later in Rome, though, Heroes played a big part in popular culture. So for now, let's resume our hero's tale. Heracles, having slain the Nemean lion, returned carrying its carcass on his shoulders, much to the surprise and terror of King Eurystheus. From now on, the king determined... Heracles' labors would have to be increasingly difficult. Influenced by Hera, he assigned the second labor, which was a trap prepared by Hera, to torment Heracles, a terrifying monster she had raised just to slay Heracles, the Hydra. The Hydra was a water monster that looked like a dragon or snake, with multiple heads. Its lair was a lake, the Lake of Lerner, which was known to be one of the entrances to the underworld. The monster was unapproachable. Its breath was poisonous, so toxic, that just the scent of the creature was deadly. It had multiple heads, but even more terrifying was the creature's ability to regrow two new heads for each one that was chopped off. The Hydra seemed invincible, impossible to slay, and so King Eurystheus demanded that Heracles kill it. Approaching the swamp near Lake Lerner, Heracles covered his face with a cloth so that the poisonous fumes could not affect him. The Hydra's lair was a cave where it stayed most of the time, occasionally emerging to terrorize nearby villages. Heracles shot flaming arrows into the lair first, 
attempting to force the monster to appear. And when it did, he confronted it. Heracles began the fight by chopping off the Hydra's heads, only to discover the monster's infinite powers of regeneration. Confronted with this conundrum, Heracles felt hopeless and short of solutions. He backed down, retreating, and the Hydra returned to its lair. Realizing that he couldn't beat the Hydra in a conventional manner, Heracles called upon his nephew, the son of his twin, for help. His nephew, Lolius, was astute, and with some inspiration from Athena, had the idea to immediately cauterize the open stumps upon chopping off each of the Hydra's heads, which would prevent new heads from regrowing. The two returned to the Hydra's lair and once again confronted it, but Hero was watching. Seeing that Heracles had found a solution and was now winning the struggle, she sent a giant crab to distract him but Heracles crushed it in short order. The Hydra now had only one head left, its immortal head, that would survive eternally, even when separated from its body. Athena gave Heracles a magical golden sword with which he could cut off this last head that kept the creature alive. The Hydra defeated, Hercules buried the head and covered it with a heavy rock for safekeeping. He cut open the body of the beast and dipped his arrows in the Hydra's poisonous blood. His second task was complete, and now, even better prepared for whatever may lie ahead, Heracles returned to Eurystheus for his next assignment. The Hydra, like the lion before, was a catonic creature. Maybe you've heard this term associated with the world of H.P. Lovecraft, the horror author. The word catonic means subterranean. There were several words in Greek for Earth, one of the more famous of which is Gaia, which refers to the surface of the land. Caton is another word for Earth, but it means in or under the earth. So Catonic or Catonian creatures came from under the earth or from the underworld. But there were Catonic deities as well, deities that lived underground, such as Hades, the god of the dead and king of the underworld, or Persephone, who Hades had captured and who was the daughter of Demeter the goddess of fertility and agriculture. These Catonic gods were worshipped and offered sacrifices, differently from the Olympian gods, which was the pantheon of gods covered by Zeus and living on Mount Olympus. The origin of this distinction between Catonic and Olympian gods and the way their cults performed rituals is not well known some archaeologists have theorized that Catonic deities could be remnants of the religion that existed in Greece 
many centuries before the emergence of what we call Greek civilization. The Proto-Greeks were believed to have arrived in the southern Balkans in the third millennium BC. They settled in Greece, but little is known of their predecessors. The population's probably mixed, and we don't know much either about their contributions to Greek culture, but it's possible that, to an extent, ancient Greek myths and religion were influenced by the pre-Greek or pre-Hellenic cultures. But back to Heracles' labors, because while he had once again triumphed against what appeared insurmountable, he still had many tasks ahead of him. Eurystheus was still under Hera's influence, and like her, wanted Heracles to fail. So, as it appeared he couldn't be defeated by monsters, they came up with a new task, one that would not involve killing a beast, and that Heracles would definitely be unable to complete. In Greece lived yet another fantastical creature, a hind, a female deer sacred to Artemis, the goddess of the hunt and animals. The hind had golden antlers and hooves of bronze, and while it was a shy and harmless animal, it was so fast that it was said to be able to outrun an arrow in flight. Eurystheus, speaking for Hera, asked Hercules to capture the hind, confident that this was the perfect plan. Heracles' strength would be useless against the hind, which was too fast to be captured. And even if he did somehow capture it, harming a hind would anger Artemis, and she would punish Heracles for his offense, probably by killing him. It seemed their plan couldn't fail, regardless of Heracles' actions. Heracles had begun his search for the hind, when one day he woke up and saw the shine of the hind's golden antlers. He started to chase the animal on foot, but every time he would come close to it, the animal accelerated and easily escaped. Days passed, then weeks. Heracles continued his pursuit of the hind, all over Greece and beyond. Months passed, then, a year after starting the hunt, his perseverance was rewarded. The hind experienced a moment of distraction, and Heracles took advantage of it. The animal was finally caught. Heracles began his return journey with the live hind slung over his shoulders. But along the way, he encountered Artemis and her brother Apollo. Heracles begged the goddess for forgiveness, explaining that catching the hind was part of his penance and that he hadn't chosen this labor himself. He promised to return the animal to Artemis as soon as he had presented it to Eurystheus as proof of his success. Artemis, not being as bitter and vindictive as Hera, understood and forgave Heracles. Eurystheus and Hera's plan had once again failed 
When Heracles presented the hind to the king, Eurystheus declared that the creature would become part of his collection of exotic animals. But Heracles could not let this happen. He had promised to return it to Artemis. So he agreed to hand over the hind on the condition that Eurystheus himself came to take it from him. The king approached, but it was a trick. Heracles freed the hind, and it sprinted back to its mistress, with no chance of capture by the king. Heracles blamed Eurystheus for not being quick enough, and thus was able to escape his dilemma. There are actually different versions of this labor that exist. In other versions, Heracles captures the hind while it is asleep, or traps it with a net, because, as is the case in most mythologies, these tales were told and rewritten by multiple authors. These were Greek stories initially, and then Roman, as Rome adopted a great deal of Greek myth and gods together with many other aspects of Greek culture and science. The twelve labors of Heracles were initially ten, or maybe even less, but as new chapters were added to the story, it changed. It is well established among scholars that Eurystheus demanded only ten labors, but as new chapters, new labors were added by other authors and cultures the need arose to reconcile the ten labor storyline with what was now twelve different tasks performed by Heracles. So later, after the classical period of Greek culture, little changes were made to reflect the evolving story. For example, two labors were disqualified by Eurystheus, the slaying of the Hydra, because Heracles had received help from his nephew, and another that you'll learn about later. This is why Heracles had to go through twelve labors, to finish the list of ten assigned him by Eurystheus and Hera. There are also episodes involving centaurs, which are creatures that are half horse, half man, and the wisest of all of them, Chiron, who had received the gift of immortality, or Prometheus, the Titan, credited with stealing fire from the gods to give it to men. These characters appear in different labors, depending on the versions, but they'll be featured in our next labor, because after three seemingly impossible tasks, Heracles was not even halfway through his penance, and was now ready for his fourth assignment. The speedy hind had been no match for Heracles, so this time Eurystheus and Hera returned to a dangerous animal on the primitive island of Arcadia, a place where no humans in their right mind would go, because it was populated by a wild creature that ate human flesh. This monstrous boar, a giant wild pig, stayed on Mount Erymantos, but sometimes raged around the countryside, laying waste to farmers' fields. 
the wild boar was dangerous, as were the other inhabitants of Mount Erymantos, a large group of centaurs, who lived there with their chief, Chiron. Heracles may have been able to defeat one monster, but what could he do against dozens of them? So the king and the goddess instructed our hero to capture the boar. What the conspirators didn't realize was that Heracles was a friend with Pholus, a kind and hospitable centaur. He visited his old friend on his way to Mount Arimantos, and the two went to Pholus's cave to eat and drink. Heracles asked for wine, and Pholus foolishly agreed to open an ancient jar in his possession, a gift from Dionysius, the god of winemaking and madness. The smell of the wine attracted the other centaurs, who drank the wine and lost their minds, attacking Heracles. Centaurs were only half-human, and so were naive and brutal creatures. Heracles was forced to shoot at them with his poisonous arrows, which made them retreat to Chiron's cave. Chiron was immortal and the wisest among centaurs, so once the other centaurs had scattered, Heracles visited him to ask for advice on how to catch the boar. Because the animal was both very fast and very strong, Chiron advised that he drive it into thick snow, which would slow down the boar and exhaust it. Following Chiron's guidance, Heracles easily caught the boar and returned to Eurystheus. The king, though, was so frightened of the monster Heracles had brought him that he hid inside a half-buried jar used for storage and begged Heracles to get rid of the beast, and he complied. It seemed that killing or capturing creatures were not the kind of tasks that would cause Heracles to fail so, three days later, when he had recovered from his fear of the boar, Eurystheus assigned yet another labor. He sent Heracles to clean the stables of King Aegeus, who owned the largest stables in Greece, housing the single greatest number of cattle in the country. His livestock was also immortal and produced an enormous quantity of manure. The task of cleaning these stables was so daunting that they had never actually been cleaned. It was impossible to even enter the stables due to the volume of manure, and they were known all around Greece for being the filthiest place in the entire country. Heracles had gained glory by capturing or slaying monsters in his previous labors and Eurystheus now understood it had been a mistake to give him the opportunity to shine. Cleaning the stables, by contrast, would not only be impossible, it was also demeaning and filthy work. As Heracles left for King Aegeus's palace, Eurystheus rubbed his hands with glee, already anticipating the humiliating downfall of our hero. 
Heracles visited Aegeus and offered to clean his stables, which the king accepted, and even offered a cavalier one-tenth of his cattle to Heracles, if the job was finished in one day. The king didn't think for a second that this was possible, but, like Hera and Eurystheus before him, he underestimated the hero's ingenuity. Instead of trying to clean the stables directly, Heracles used nature to do the job. Two rivers passed nearby, so Heracles dug ditches to divert their flow and forced them to pass through the stables. Within a few hours, the water had carried away the filth and left the stables like new. When he returned to Aegeus to claim his prize, one-tenth of the cattle, the king reacted angrily, refusing to honor the agreement and arguing that the rivers, not Heracles, had done the work. The king's sons supported their father, all except one, Phileas. As a result, Heracles killed them all except Phileas, giving him his father's kingdom. He then returned to Eurystheus, but like Aegeus, the king refused to credit Heracles for his success at the stables because the waters had done the work, and furthermore, because Heracles had been paid with the cattle. Along with his slaying of the Hydra, this was the second time, as I mentioned before, that Heracles was denied credit for his efforts. Heracles had completed five tasks, but only three were accepted by Eurystheus, leaving seven more still to finish. The main theme in this fifth labor is the use of ingenuity and intelligence to achieve what might otherwise seem impossible. This is a reoccurring theme in Greek mythology, as is the idea that nature can be put to work by humans to multiply their output and well-being. This conception of the world, that nature is a force that can be and should be tamed by the intellect and engineering, is specific to Greek culture. This is, of course, something nearly all civilizations do or have done, using agriculture, tools, or even fire as ways to use nature to our advantage. But the Greeks elaborated upon it and praised it. This conception was also passed on to other ancient cultures, especially to the Romans, and became a trait of Western culture for better or for worse. More than 25 centuries ago, the origins of this way of relating to nature by mankind were already present in this myth. Not only in the labors of Heracles, the myth of Prometheus, about the transmission of fire stolen from the gods to man, also carries with it the belief that through the acquisition of knowledge and technique, men elevate themselves. By gaining power and control over nature, humans rise closer to the status of gods. 
this kind of ingenuity would again come in handy in Heracles' sixth labor. For his sixth labor, Eurystheus sent Heracles to slay a swarm of birds to a lake in a swamp in a region called Stymphalia. These birds were a plague to the entire region. Their beaks were bronze and their feathers made of metal, which they could shoot at their victims, and everywhere they went they left poisonous dung. Breeding and multiplying from their nesting place, they swarmed over the countryside, eating crops and attacking locals. Some had tried to hunt them before, but the birds had wounded and killed their attackers with their beaks, sharp enough to pierce any armor. Heracles walked to the marsh where the birds nested, but couldn't reach them because the swampy ground would not support his weight. Once again he was uncertain of a way forward, but the goddess Athena was still watching. She gave Heracles a very loud rattle, and he knew right away what he had to do, climbing to the top of a mountain that overhung the swamp and shaking the rattle. The birds, frightened by the noise, took to the air, and, quick as lightning, Heracles shot many of them with his poisonous arrows. The birds who weren't killed escaped, and flew far away, never again to plague the region. Some of the dead birds he brought to Eurystheus as proof of his success. Heracles was now ready for his seventh labor. For this new assignment, Hera and Eurystheus decided it was time to send Heracles far away to capture the Cretan bull on the island of Crete in the kingdom of Minos. For a long time already, this bull had terrorized Crete, and Minos was also to blame for it. At the beginning of his reign in Crete, Minos had prayed to Poseidon, god of the seas and protector of the Crete, to send him a white bull as a sign of his right to rule, rather than any of his brothers. Poseidon had sent Minos the bull, which was larger than any other and white as snow, with the understanding that the animal would be sacrificed to him. But when Minos saw the bull, so fine and extraordinary, he decided not to sacrifice it after all, sacrificing an inferior animal from his herds instead. But the gods can't be fooled so easily. Poseidon, seeing that the king had tried to keep the gift, decided to punish him. He asked the goddess Aphrodite, to make Minos his wife, Queen Pasiphae, fall in love with the bull, and Aphrodite made sure it happened. From this unnatural affair was born a creature, half man, half bull, the Minotaur. Then Poseidon passed on his rage to the bull, causing it to sow destruction upon the island. 
desperate about what he could do. Minos consulted the oracle at Delphi, after which she ordered the construction of a labyrinth to hold the Minotaur. But the Minotaur's father, the Cretan bull, was still loose and tearing apart Crete, flattening walls, destroying orchards, and uprooting fields. Minos gladly gave Heracles permission to take the bull away. So Heracles captured it and shipped it to Eurystheus. This chapter of the myth refers to the cult of the bull, which was very ancient in Crete and the southwest of Anatolia. We know it dates back several thousand years, thanks to archaeological discoveries. The iconography around the bull was very present in Minoan culture, which was the culture of Crete before it was integrated into the Greek world. The bull was a catonic animal, that is to say, from the underground, which you might remember learning about earlier, and Greek myth about bulls such as the Cretan bull and the Minotaur are probably a byproduct of these cultures integrating. But this seventh labor was actually added later, after most of the other labors, and maybe as a result of the connection between Crete and the city of Athens. The labyrinth and the Minotaur is another famous myth and also includes this connection between Athens and Crete, because the starting point in the myth of the labyrinth is the mythical tradition of sending young Athenians to the labyrinth where they would be offered in sacrifice to the Minotaur. Heracles was now ready for his eighth labor, and this one would take him to the northeast of Greece, to Thrace, where Eurystheus sent him to capture and bring back a terrifying herd of four mares. These four horses belonged to the king of Thrace, Diomedes, and fed on human flesh. The king kept the herd fed with servants who had displeased him, or guests who expected to find shelter at the palace, but instead became horse-feed. Diomedes was a half-god too, like Heracles, the son of Iris, the god of war, and a princess. From his father, Diomedes had inherited cruelty and brutality, and there was no negotiating with him. The mares would have to be stolen. Hera and Eurystheus hoped that this new trap would finally get rid of Heracles. Not only were the four mares dangerous, so was their owner, and he was a king and a half-god. Heracles traveled to Thrace. He took the horses, but soon was chased by Diomedes and his men. The horses were housed in a stable, tethered to a manger, but as soon as Heracles freed them, they became nearly impossible to control, and our hero needed all his strength to keep their chains in his grip and to avoid being eaten alive. He traveled by day and rested at night on his way back to Greece. But along the way he encountered Diomedes, 
and had to fight him. He won the fight, of course, killing Diomedes with an axe, and fed the body to the horses. As soon as they finished eating their previous owner, the horses became calmer. Heracles took the opportunity to bind their mouths and thus could easily travel with them back to Eurystheus. The king dedicated the horses to Hera, and this is how Heracles completed his eighth labor. For his ninth assignment to Heracles, Eurystheus hoped to please his daughter, who wanted the belt of Hippolyta, the queen of the Amazons, who, like Diomedes, was an offspring of Ares, the god of war. Hippolyta's father had offered his daughter his own belt as a symbol of her power over the Amazon tribe of warrior women. The Amazons lived far away from Greece, on the coast of the Black Sea, and Heracles gathered a group of companions to set sail to this distant land. When they arrived, Queen Hippolyta received them well. The Amazons respected strength, and she had heard of Heracles's many exploits. She agreed to give him the belt, but Hero was again watching, and would not let him succeed so easily. She disguised herself as an Amazon and walked among them, creating distrust, claiming Heracles had come to abduct or kill their queen. The Amazons were alarmed and set off on horseback to confront him. But when Heracles saw them approaching, he assumed Hippolyta had been plotting all along and would not hand over the belt. In a rage, he killed the queen, took the belt, and escaped by the sea. The Amazons could not pursue him on horseback, and he managed to return safely to the court of Eurystheus with the belt, having accomplished his ninth labor. The Amazons were a recurring myth in ancient Greece. They were located in different places, depending on the story being told. The north or the south of Anatolia, of Turkey, or even the coast of Libya. They appeared in the Trojan War on the side of Troy. They fought against the Greeks. Maybe this myth has its roots in the existence of female warriors on the steppes north of the Black Sea, where tombs of such warriors have been discovered. But the term Amazon has passed to modern language to refer to warrior women, or even to very tall or large women in general. It is also the reason why the largest forest and river in the world are called the Amazon. When the first explorers arrived in Brazil, they named them after this mythical land, maybe because the native people were their hair long and made the explorers think of female warriors. The myth of the Amazons has also sparked interest among psychologists and psychoanalysts because it obviously relates to the representations of women in Greek society and their sexuality. 
ancient Greece was extremely patriarchal. Women could not be citizens and could not participate in public life. They are present in mythology, but always in a secondary supporting role, important only for the feelings and actions they inspire in men. Women are never the heroes in the sense that they cannot modify their own destinies according to their will or their abilities. In this context, Amazons are a very weird and somewhat scary myth for ancient Greeks. These women don't need men. They go to war. They form their own political community. For the male authors who wrote about them, Amazons likely reflected a mix of revulsion and fascination as a countermodel to Greek society. Now that Heracles had returned from the land of the Amazons, he was ready for his tenth labor. Eurystheus and Hera decided to send him even further away this time, to the extreme west of the Mediterranean Sea. Heracles was asked to obtain the cattle of Gerion, a giant who dwelt on an island where the sun set daily. Gerion was a terrifying monster with three heads. He owned a two-headed hound, which was the brother of Cerberus, the three-headed hound who guarded the doors of hell. But these cattle were the most magnificent in the world. That was a long journey, and Heracles had to cross the Libyan desert. Frustrated by the heat and exhausted by the distance, he shot an arrow at the sun out of anger. Helios, who embodied the sun, was impressed by Heracles' courage and gave him a gift, a magical golden cup that Heracles could use to sail across the sea from west to east each night. Thanks to the cup, Heracles arrived on the island in a mere few hours. But as soon as he landed, the two-headed dog attacked him. The hound was no match for Heracles, who killed him with one blow of his club. The noise had attracted Gerion, who sprang into action his three heads wearing three helmets. This giant was way too big to be vanquished with a club, and his multiple heads made it impossible to hide from his sight. But Heracles still had his poisonous arrows, dipped in the blood of the Hydra's corpse. He shot one arrow so forcefully that it pierced the giant's forehead, killing Gerion. Heracles could now return to Greece with the prized cattle, but the journey was very long, and Hera was once again there to confound him. She sent a gadfly to bite the animals, causing the cattle to scatter. It took Heracles a full year to retrieve them all. In another attempt to stop him, Hera flooded a river so much that Heracles could not cross with the animals. But our hero was never short of resources and energy, 
and piled stones into the river to make it shallower. After several more months of travel, Heracles finally reached the court of Eurystheus, where the cattle were sacrificed to his antagonist, Hera. Heracles was now only two labors away from completing his penance, and Eurystheus and Hera were beginning to worry that he might succeed. How could they make things more difficult for him after all their previous attempts? Maybe they could send him to a place that no one could locate. And this is how the idea for his eleventh labor was conceived. Hera, in tears, demanded that Heracles bring her three of the golden apples from the garden of the Hesperides. The Hesperides were the nymphs of evening, the daughters of the sunset, who lived in the west. These supernatural beings were the daughters of Atlas, a titan who held up the sky for eternity, and they cared for an orchard, a garden that belonged to Hera, where extraordinary golden apples grew. When her marriage with Zeus took place, various deities attended and brought wedding gifts for her, among them the goddess of earth, Gaia, who offered branches with golden apples on them. Hera greatly admired these branches and begged Gaia to be allowed to plant them in her garden. The Hesperides were given the task of taking care of the garden, but they occasionally picked apples for themselves. To watch the nymphs and to ensure that they didn't take any more of her precious fruit, Hera placed a never-sleeping, immortal dragon as a guard. Considering the location, unknown and well-protected, and far to the west, where the Mediterranean Sea and the world ended, Hera and Eurystheus were sure that there was no way Heracles could triumph. This time, the hero didn't even know where to start looking for the garden. So he went to one of the most ancient gods in the world, the primordial father of waters, the old man of the sea, a god older than Poseidon himself. The old man of the sea had no sympathy for Hera and promptly pointed the way to the garden of the Hesperides. When Heracles arrived, he found Atlas, the titan who carried the heavens on his shoulders and offered to hold up the heavens for a while if Atlas would retrieve some apples for him from the garden. Atlas accepted, and the Hesperides and the dragon did not bother him, as he was the father of the nymphs. When Atlas returned with the three stolen apples, he decided that he didn't want to take the heavens back and would instead let Heracles continue to hold up the sky. But Heracles had yet another trick up his sleeve. He accepted Atlas's decision to go to Greece in his stead, and to deliver the apples to Eurystheus. But before he left, would Atlas hold the world one more time, just long enough so Heracles could adjust his cloak? Atlas agreed 
and Heracles took the opportunity to walk away with the apples, leaving the titan to his fate. His eleventh and second-to-last labor was complete. Eurystheus and Hera were dismayed again at this triumph, and tried to imagine the most difficult labor they could think of in their final attempt to prevent Heracles from succeeding. And so they came up with his twelfth assignment, to go to the underworld and capture Cerberus, the three-headed giant dog who guarded the gates of the underworld. The underworld was known to be a terrifying place, where Hades reigned and dictated the rules. Mortals who entered the underworld remained trapped there, and even heroes like Theseus had not been able to escape. To prepare for his descent into the underworld, Heracles went to Athena to be initiated into its mysteries. Gods Hermes and Athena guided and advised him so that he would be ready. Heracles descended through a cavern that was one of the entrances to the underworld, and after some time in this dark place, he found Hades and asked the god for permission to bring Cerberus to the surface. Hades, like so many others at this point, knew about his labors and how Hera had repeatedly tried to trick and cheat Heracles. Hades gave his permission to remove the three-headed hound, but on one condition. Heracles would have to subdue the beast without using any weapons. Heracles overpowered Cerberus with his bare hands, succeeding yet again, then went up and returned to the Peloponnese to bring the prize to Eurystheus. The king was again terrified, and fled to the big jar where he had hidden previously when presented with the wild boar. Eurystheus was so scared that he offered to release Heracles from any further labors if only he would return Cerberus to the underworld. And so it was done. After years of service to Eurystheus and twelve impossible tasks in which he had succeeded thanks to his bravery, strength, and intelligence, Heracles was finally free and washed of the sins Hera had made him commit. But the twelve labors had not erased the past. They had also made Heracles stronger, more knowledgeable, more resilient, and wiser. Through this journey, he had learned about the world, and about himself. And so have we, as we followed his footsteps. But for now, we have reached the end of our journey. After twelve long, hard labors, you may now let go and fall asleep. I hope you wake up happy and full of energy, and that your dreams, like Athena, inspire you to tackle whatever lies ahead. Sleep well, dear friends. <laughs>